Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Well, good morning. Um, my name is Raleigh Wrench. I'm one of the pastors here, in case you're a guest with us this morning. And uh, we'll let you know that um, after the, immediately after the service, I'm going to be hanging out back in the pastor's corner. If you have any questions, I'd love to be able to talk to you. Um, today, we're kind of jumping back into our First Timothy uh, study that we started here about two or three months ago. Uh, we took a break there for Easter, and, uh, and so that was a wonderful time. Um, but here we're, we're back into chapter 3. We're beginning in chapter 3, and we're looking at 1 through 7. Now, I will tell you right up front today that we're, we're only going to really uh, cover one verse, believe it or not. Um, we're going to talk about it a little bit, but for the most part, we're just going to look at one verse, and we're going to look at some, some pieces of this. And so remind you kind of where we're at in this, and if you're uh, maybe new with us, uh, this letter, this First Timothy, is a letter that was written from the Apostle Paul uh, who, to a young man named Timothy. And Timothy was a, a man that he was mentoring. Uh, Timothy had traveled with him on missionary journeys, um, had spent a lot of time with him. And, and Paul, we believe, is, is realizing that he's probably more close to the end of his life. He probably realizes that due to uh, some of the things that are happening in Rome, that he may end up and be uh, put to, in prison again and maybe be put to death. And so he's writing Timothy uh, and another man, Titus, he's going to be writing. We're going to go through that letter here in a few months. And, and kind of saying, look, guys, you need to carry on and, and keep setting up elders in the church, keep, uh, keep the doctrine uh, sound, make sure that you're caring for the church. Um, Timothy was definitely an overseer of the churches at some level. Maybe he was a pastor there in Ephesus. He's, he's, that's where Timothy's at right now in a city called Ephesus. But I believe this is really more uh, broadly that he's telling Timothy, I need you to care for the church, Timothy. And so what we saw a few weeks ago or a few months ago is that Paul just begins to share about his own life with Timothy, remind him how, how God has saved Paul. Right? He was a, a sinful man and yet the glory of God, the gift of God and salvation. And so he's reminding Timothy, be encouraged, Timothy, because no matter what you come against, God saved me. And if he saves me, Timothy, he can save anyone, right? And that's kind of what he does. And so then we, we look last week, excuse me, a couple weeks ago, into to chapter 2. And, and these are some of these difficult passages of, of um, that, that you know, a lot of pastors don't want to preach on because it has to do with the role of women and the differences. And so what we did is we went all the way back to Genesis for a few weeks, and we looked at how God created men and women in creation, uh, equal, equally loved, equally valued, both image bearers of God, but he's made us for different roles. And so, and together, we bring glory to God. And so we're going to see a picture of that even uh, today and, and how the roles come into play a little bit. And we're going to look primarily at the role of elder pastor, okay? And so we'll, we'll kind of unpack that. But before we go any further, I want to ask you a question. I want you to just imagine for a minute. Imagine a world in which the President of the United States and all of the Congress, the U.S. Congress, Senate, House of Representatives, never lied. I'm serious. Just imagine that for a minute. They just were committed to telling the truth. Now I realize there are certain things they have to keep secret, but they just never lied. They never tried to deceive. They never let money or big donors influence the way they vote. That's another big one. They never endorsed or ran attack ads to get reelected. They always put the country and the good of the country above their reelection. And they were always willing to admit when they made a mistake and that they were wrong. Can you imagine that world? Probably not. But think about that. Wouldn't that be a credible place to live? A wonderful place to live. The community that that would inspire and, and the fellowship and the trust and, and all of the, the, really brings God glory. I mean, all of it would just be such a, a beautiful picture of, of really the kingdom, I believe. Because it would be ruled well. 
justice. What if every man would commit to never being sexually active until he was married? The reason I'm saying men, because we're talking about elders today. What if every man said, I will not be sexually active until I get married? I want to honor God in that way. How would our culture be different? Whew. Maybe even more powerful than the government doing those things. What if every man that fathered a child, even if it ended in divorce or never was married, if every man that fathered a child actually committed to raising and supporting the child and truly fathering the child? How would our culture be different? What is the thing that all of this, these dreams of ours, these hopes of ours, these desires of ours, what is, what is the theme in there that's, that's common? Is being a person of great godly character. Now think about how that applies to the church. Do we see that same struggle in the, the church? And I'm not just talking our church. We deal with it. The church at large, the world global church. Is there lying? Sexual morality? Yes. Yes, there is, unfortunately. Because we're in it, right? We're sinful people. You know, God has established governments. Why? For our good. Scripture clearly says that in Romans. Establish it for our, for our good, for, for, for law and order, um, and that we should obey those things. And God is always about structure. He is a God of order, not of disorder. Sin causes disorder. Sin causes chaos, right? But justice and order is who God is and what he's about. And so in his creation, we see that everything was good and that there was order. And when man decides to do what man wants to do outside of God's law, disorder comes and corruption comes and rebellion comes and then chaos. And so here, we see that God has placed an order in government and now what we see begin to take shape, and we see it all through the Old Testament too, but we're not going to go there. There was order. There was a structure. There was, there was the tabernacle. There was a certain way of, of offering sacrifices. There was a priestly system. Everything was about a certain order of things because order brings holiness and, and a way of honoring God. It's, it removes the, the chaos and is obedient. And so what do we see here in the church? Because really this is what I want you to see. Is that now as Paul is kind of handing the baton to Timothy and saying, one of the things that God wants you to do, Timothy, is to make sure that you continue to, to, to oversee the church in a way that brings order and that, that, it, that brings health to the church. And the way that that happens is that God is going to build a structure of leadership and maybe even equally as important, if not more important, is that the people that you put in those roles must have certain qualifications, and the main ones are about character, godly character. And so that's what we just read. That's what we just read. And so what is your big idea for you this morning is that God sets a structure for his church. God sets a, a structure. God just didn't say, well, just, hey, just love me and do whatever you want to do. No, God lays out a structure of, of, of servants and, and leaders and teachers for a purpose. And, and why? Now think about this for a minute. What is the church? The bride of Christ, right? That's worth the bride. He is fashioning, the father here is fashioning a bride for his son. And so what does he want of this bride? He wants her to be holy. He wants her to be sinless. He doesn't want her to lie. He doesn't want her to be sexual moral. He wants her to be beautiful. And so what does God do? He builds a structure. That he, then he says, I want, I want to put some people in that structure that are going to help the bride be pure and holy. To help the bride to function in a way and to grow in a way of health and maturity and beauty and purity. And so where do we see this? Or what are the three things that we see primarily here in the structure of the church? First is that, that God says he's going to bring servant 
leaders and teachers into a role. And we would call those people elders and, and pastors primarily. Now, are there other um, leadership in the church in certain ways? Yes, but as far as leading the church at the, at the high level, um, doctrinally under the teaching of the scripture is going to be elders and, and pastors, and we're going to look at other words for that. And that's the primary purpose of these servant leaders that are going to be at that level. And then there's going to be another type of servant who's going to meet the needs of the church. I would say both personal and administrative or, or task-oriented. We're going to get to that when we get to verse 8 in the next few weeks. The Scripture calls them deacons or diakonos. It's this servants, right? Now, I will tell you that elders are, are servants as well. They're servant leaders, just like these people are servants. But the roles of these servant leaders are different. One is going to tend to the, the needs of the body, which is extremely important, um, tend to the needs of, of the widows, to the orphans, to, to the hurting, to the poor, tends to the needs of the administration, things of the building, um, you know, ground maintenance, all those things, because the body needs these things to be cared for so that we can meet and so that we can be healthy and so we can do those things. And so God is instituting two groups of people, one that are going to teach and lead, and they should still serve as well in their own ways, and then another group that's going to focus on the needs of the people and, and ministering to people and the needs of the, the, you know, the building, all the administrative things. And so those are very important roles. And why is he doing that? Why does God instruct us to have this? Because he wants his bride to be cared for. He wants to grow in the mature of the bride. He doesn't want us to end up like Congress and have an 8% approval rating. Right? He doesn't want us to be marred in sin. And so he's putting people to say, guard my church. Keep it from false teaching. Minister to those that are hurting, right? Bind up their wounds. And then what does he say also? He sets qualifications for this. He says, just not anybody's going to do this role. I'm not going to put anybody in these roles. I, I, want, I want a certain set of qualifications. And so he, he lists some qualifications here in really two through seven. And we're going to get into those qualifications next week. But, but these beautiful things about this is how we should be. And I will tell you that even though this is written specifically for elders and pastors and, and that, that group there that is, he's talking about the teachers and leaders, I believe these principles are for all Christians. We should all want to aspire to these things. Even the teaching one, in the sense that we should all be teachers of the word to our children, to, to uh, other women, to, to our friends, to discipleship. We should all aspire to that at some level. Now, where do we see all of these things um, kind of in a passage that's taking place? Now, what's interesting here, and I want to point this out to you, is that here Paul is writing to Timothy towards the end of his life, and he's saying, okay, here's how the church should look. You know, the, the, the gospel has been made known, there's been missionary journeys, churches have been planted in many of these places in modern-day Turkey, and now Timothy is being instructed by Paul to care for them well, and Paul is kind of laying out some ideas on how, not ideas, but instructions on how to, to lead the church and how the church should function. Now, there are some, some things in there that, that, that are not absolutely clear, that are of subjective, that we can manage things in a different way, and there's some things that, aren't that are very clear. And so we're going to look at the difference of those two. But if you go back into the book of Acts, chapter 6, now this is many years before this, when Paul is writing this letter. This is actually before Paul is even a believer. He is uh, with a group of people, and, and there's some things going on, and um, I just want to pick it up here, but this is early in the church, and there's some disagreements, some things are happening. These people go to, to the apostles because they have a complaint about what's happening in the church. And so let's pick it up, this up in Acts chapter 6, 1 through 4. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And I'll just say that daily distribution was of food. Okay, And I'll explain the Hellenists and the Hebrews here in a minute. The twelve, talking about the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God and serve tables. So basically distribute the food to people. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
Okay, so who are the, what's going on here? So the widows uh, were, were being fed by the church, basically, and, and what was happening is you had a, a group of Hebrew women, very devoted Hebrew women that, that um, maybe were Christians now, we doesn't really say, but they were Hebrew women, we assume that they had given their life to Christ as early in the church, and there's a group of Helen, Hellenists, what were Hellenists? These were people generally of, of origin that were Jewish, but they had really begun to live more of a Greek life and all the cultural pieces of it, they weren't as strict as the Hebrews were and how they lived their daily life. And so they're coming and saying, hey, um, the Hellenists are kind of saying, hey, we're being dis- discriminated against and, and only the best food and m- most people that are getting the attention are the Hebrew women, not the Hellenistic women. And so they're complaining. And so the apostles say, okay, we, we, we're here to solve this. So we don't have time, and here's where you see this first group, the servants that lead and teach. The apostles are saying, okay, we teach, the gospel needs to go out, and so we, want, we would suggest that you appoint some people, and we will then appoint them and, and set them aside to do this. And so we see these two groups of people. We see teachers and leaders of the gospel, and then we see people who are meeting the needs, the very important needs of the church, of the body, Okay. So what about the qualifications? Notice that it says, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. He is not saying just find anybody that is free to serve. He's saying this role is important. How you minister to the body, how you minister to the widows is extremely important and one that we want to make sure that we have good Christian, reputable people that are filled with the spirit doing this. And so we see this structure and the qualifications here all the way back in Acts. And so here what we're looking at is now Paul is putting that in writing to Timothy and saying this is how the church is important to be structured. So where do we, where do we see this now? We, we get into this question about the roles. And so last two weeks ago, Pastor Brian spoke on um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse, well, several verses there, but basically 11 and 12. And um, the, obviously the very controversial verse for a lot of people in our culture today is 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. It says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, one thing I want to say about that is that this is God's structure in the church. It doesn't mean that outside the church that, that someone can't work and there's a man that's, or a woman in charge. That's not what he's saying. He says, inside the church... There's a structure that God has put into place that says elders and pastors are going to do the, the teaching in the, in the congregation over men and women. Women can still teach, but only over women or children. And, and so I want to be real clear because I know that for some uh, clarity about these practices is very important. And I just want to be, I want to be honest with you. In our church, um, we're going to set that, that circle of practice different than maybe a church down the street. Doesn't mean the church down the street doesn't love Jesus, doesn't make them right or us wrong, but we look at Scripture a certain way and we decide where to put this. Let me give you an example. Nowhere in Scripture does it says, can a woman teach children fourth grade and under? Because there's little boys in there. They're little men. doesn't say. So we set that and we say, yes, because women are teaching their children at home. They're doing all those things. Absolutely. Could a woman teach a high schooler? Possibly, yes. We've set our circle that says, well, we're going to say men are going to teach fifth grade and up. Women can be in there to be teaching as well. But the primary leader of that, that teaching moment is going to be a man, a male. That's where we set our circle. It doesn't make it right or wrong necessarily. It's just how we, we have to decide where to put this down. Scripture doesn't tell us all those things, and so we do that. You've noticed that here we, we obviously... Um, we have women pray at times. We, that's where we set our circle. There are churches that would not do that. There's churches that would have them do more than that. Um, we all set our circle someplace different. And so I just want to be clear, as we work through this passage, the elders and I are working and, and trying to establish more clear um, practices for all of you so that you know, especially ladies, so that you know you're not wondering, like, well, can I do that? Can I not do that? Is that, is that something that will... And we're trying to do that. We we're working at doing that. And we don't have it all down. Give you any, I'll just let you know. Last Sunday, the Ridge Church turned 25. 25 years as of last Sunday. 
are we a different church than we were 25 years ago? Oh, yeah. Okay, by God's grace, he's continued to shape us and fashion us. Are we a different church than we were five years ago, six years ago? Yes, we are. And I hope I can tell you in five years from now, if the Lord doesn't come and I'm still alive, that we are a different church in five years because we're growing in holiness. We're growing in obedience. And, and what happens? We come to the text and we say, oh, we don't do that. We probably got that wrong. Oh, it's going to be a big change. How we do that? Do we do that? Is it right? How do we practice that? And so we're constantly being shaped and molded. Scripture calls that being sanctified. You're being sanctified in, in your life. I'm being sanctified, but he sanctifies his church as a whole as well, right? And so we're, we're working through that. And so if you have questions, please come see Pastor Brian or I, one of our elders. We're happy to talk to you about that. We are freely admitting that we don't have all this down. Like we're working at it, right? And so here, as we look at the passage today, what's the first thing that, that I want to make a point here, and we're going to talk about this, is that God assigns the role of pastor-elder to men. God assigns the role of pastor-elder to men. Now, as Brian did such a good job two weeks ago, that doesn't mean that, that women aren't, um, don't handle Scripture as well. It doesn't even mean that there aren't some women that handle Scripture better than some of the men that may preach or, or teach. That's not the point. The point is that God has a structure that he's put down, um, just like he did the government, just like he did the church, just like he did the family. There's, a, there's just a structure that honors him and glorifies him, and that, and that we, when we abide in that structure, I believe God does amazing things, and we honor him in that. And so we, we trust his word, we, we live by that. Now, I'm going to read to you, if you have your Bible open, I'm going to read today's passage again. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And what I want you to look at um, is in this passage, this is obviously a very important passage because it is the one that's determining, and there's not a lot of places in Scripture that say it quite this clearly. I think it's all through Scripture from Genesis to, to, to Revelation that lays out this structure. But here it's very clear that the role of elder pastor is reserved for men. And, and I'm just going to point an obvious thing out to you, maybe. Uh, it's not something I'd really kind of seen until just recently. Um, I, I want you to notice, and if you like, write in your Bibles, I want you to underline or circle every time in these seven verses, um, it says he or his, okay? He or his, because God is addressing this to men, I believe. Pick it up. Verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if Someone does not know how to manage his own household. How will he care for the church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Seven times he says he, and three times he says his. And once he says the husband of one wife. So 11 times in this passage, he's acknowledging that this is a man in this role. It's very clear, very clear, okay? So in this structure, God is establishing in this role men as elders and pastors. All right, once again, we're not saying that this is a... Um, one is better than the other. We're not even saying that this role of elder pastor is different than the servants who care for the body. It's just a different role, just like in marriage. There are different roles for different purposes, for the kingdom, for God's purposes, and that's where we rest, and that's where we, we try and live out and do the best that we can to honor God in our role. So let's look at verse 1. That's really the, the scripture we're going to kind of spend a little bit of time on this morning. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. This, this statement here, the saying is trustworthy. It's interesting, Paul uses this statement like five times in, in the books or the letters to Timothy and Titus. No other place in Scripture in any other Pauline epistles does he use them. 
And I don't know exactly why. Obviously, I, I'm, Paul's not here for me to ask that. But I think one of the reasons is because he is writing to Timothy a very personal, direct letter. And what he's trying to convey by this statement is he's saying, look, Timothy, this is important and you can trust it. You can take it to the bank, Timothy, that this is true. The saying is trustworthy. We see this early in the letter to Timothy in chapter 1, verse 15, when Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He's saying, look, Timothy, I am the foremost sinner. You can bank on that, right? He's, he's really trying to communicate the magnitude and the weight of this statement. And so he says this multiple times. We see it, the only other place we see it is in the book of Revelation when John uses it a few times. But other than that, it's not in any, I've not found it in any other scripture throughout the Bible. So Paul is just making a very simple, um, profound statement to Timothy that says, look, Timothy, what I'm telling you right now, you, you, need to, you need to employ these things. You need to trust these things. They're important, so don't overlook them, right? And it goes on there, it says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. A couple things I want to say about that. Um, first and foremost, he says, if anyone. Now, obviously, that's in the context of, of men here, right? Because he's already established that. He's going to establish that in the rest of the text. He's saying, so basically, if any man wants to aspire to this position, right? Aspire to the office of overseer. Now, I, I want to clarify something about anyone, anyone that meets the qualifications that I'm giving you to be a man and to meet these qualifications down below. Now, I want to speak briefly about the qualifications. We're going to deal with that a lot next week. Notice something about these qualifications. Now, you got to remember, Paul is a Pharisee or was a Pharisee, very schooled, very knowledgeable, obviously had been to, to great um, theological schooling in his life as a Pharisee. Notice that Paul doesn't say anything about any of that. Everything is about character. Everything is about how you conduct yourself, right? You have to be able to teach, he says. But he doesn't say, hey, everybody has to have a four-year seminary degree. Now, that's good. Luke Middlesetter is getting ready to go here this fall. I'm proud of him. I know some other young men that have been to seminary. Pastor Brian did two years of, of online schooling, with a, and I think that's great. But, but for many of us, we think, oh, this is this, this position for elite people that have all this education and all this stuff. No, what the Apostle Paul is saying, this is for godly men who love the Lord, who live their life in a way that is pleasing to him, right? And this is going to be true for, for deacons we're going to see in a few weeks as well. They have to have these qualities too. So if you want to serve, if you want to serve in the church in some really... Um, way that's kind of a position to oversee other volunteers. We're just not anybody goes in that role. There's a, there's a position of qualification here. And that qualification is to have a godly character. And so this idea of anyone. And so I just want to encourage, and once again, this is for all people in the sense of we should all aspire to these things. But specifically here, as we are addressing uh, this in the text, he's speaking to men here. And then he says, if anyone aspires, this word aspire, um, in the Greek, it's a, a kind of a, a rego. Like this, when, what does that mean? It, it means this idea of to stretch out uh, in order to touch something or grasp something, to reach after or desire something. In other words, what I think one of the things it's trying to say is, is this is not something that's just going to be handed to you. It's not going to be something that's going to be given to anyone. You have to, you have to work for this. This is something that, that you put effort into. You're going to have to die to yourself, to your own character sometimes. You're going to have to, to die to your selfishness. This is something you're aspiring to. It's just not, it's not just you go along and pick it up. It's just like, so, oh, I can have this for free. No, you're, you're something you're desiring and you're willing to die to achieve it. Because really what he's saying is, look, if you want to care for my church, you need to be able to be a good example. We're going to look at that here in a little bit. And so this idea to aspire to something. And then he says the office of overseer, office, this idea of a position, a role here specifically that God has placed in the church. Now, some of your Bibles, that word may be overseer. Uh, most scripture is going to be translated that way. It could be the word bishop. Um, once again, overseer, this idea that they're overseeing uh, the activities of the church. Um, 
early in the church, it could have even meant for people that were overseeing multiple house churches, kind of to say, you know, okay, there's four or five house churches going on, and, and I, Timothy may have been, or people like that could have been overseeing those house churches. It also can refer to pastor, elder, shepherd. All those words are pretty much interchangeable in Scripture. Pastor, we only see one time, I think it's in Ephesians. Really, it's pastor-shepherd, this idea of, of shepherding the flock, caring for the flock. Remember, what was the whole point of this structure? Is that God wants his bride to be cared for. He wants her to be nurtured and, and protected. So God sets these people up over them. Alexander, I won't get his name right, but Strouch, Strouch uh, in his book, Biblical Eldership, says this. It says, elders lead the church, teach and preach the word, protect the church from false teachers, exhort and admonish the saints in sound doctrine, visit the sick and pray, and judge doctrinal issues. In biblical terminology, elders shepherd, oversee, lead, and care for the local church. That's the position of elders. Here at the church, we have, there's five of us, Pastor Brian and I, um, and three other men that we all elder. Uh, we could call them pastors. We, we don't. We, we're all elders. We're all pastors. To help the congregation kind of see uh, that we're paid staff, we, we name ourselves pastors. They are elders. You could call them pastors. We just, we just don't do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But just to help people understand that, that we're the paid staff, and these guys are, are wonderful volunteers that come along and serve. And what is our role? We're to preach and teach. We're to protect, right? right? Exhort and admonish the saints and sound doctrine. Pray for the sick. Judge biblical doctrinal issues. Make decisions, basically, where to put the circle down. Fourth grade and under, what about above? What about this? What about that? That's, that's our role. Obviously, we don't, we don't do that perfectly. I'm free to understand. I free, I'll freely admit that. All right. He goes on there and closes out that verse, and it says, He desires a noble task. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Right? What is this idea of noble task? Is it saying, oh, this guy really is a good guy because he desires this? No, that's not the point of the passage. The emphasis on the noble task. He's saying, if you desire this, you desire something noble. This is a beautiful thing that you're desiring to do. You desire to put yourself and your own selfish things aside, possibly, and serve in such a way to serve the church, to serve the body of Christ. For many people in that role as elders, it is volunteer. Many of them work a full-time job and yet still volunteer in this capacity to serve and to teach. And, and once again, I am not here to um, toot the elders' horns or whatever, but I will tell you that I, I was going to read you a quote by, by John Calvin, and, and um, I just decided not to do it. It was just too much for the message, but overseeing the body of Christ and admonishing false teaching, rightly dividing the word, making decisions about how to implement things, um, church discipline. Nobody wants to volunteer for that for the most part. Right? I get it. Nobody wants to be paid for that. Right? Because it's hard. And that, but that's why, the, that's why Paul's saying they desire a noble thing. Like, if, if you want to be involved at that level, and you know the challenges that may come with that, you know that you're not going to be perfect at that, and you're going to have to ask forgiveness at times, you're going to have to, to repent of sin at times in, in front of the congregation, in front of the body. If you're, you do desire that, you desire a noble thing, is what he's saying. And so what do we see here in 1 Peter Peter puts it this way to the early church, chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Here he's talking to, I believe, the elders, and he says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. There's that word of overseer, kind of. that, that Not under compulsion, not, a, not, not under this idea that I have to do this. That it's, I don't want to do this, but I have to do this. It's, it's what I've been put here to do. No, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God what have you? In other words, do you love the body? One of the things that we look for in an elder qualified man is someone who loves the people, loves the body, not just certain people, 
everyone. Everyone. People that are not like them. People that even drive them crazy a little bit. Are, are you doing it out of love, willingness, not out of compulsion, like, oh, I have to go see that person. I don't want to see that person. Right? No, willingly, as God would have you. Then he says, not for shameful gain, not, not for money. You don't do this for a job, for money. I'm so grateful that the church very generously compensates Pastor Brian and I. But I hope and I believe that I'm not here for my career. I spent 25 years in this church, 10 of those as just an attender working in the secular job, and 15 now as a pastor. I'm not here for the money. Obviously, money is important to, to make my life function and to put food on our table and to provide for my wife and my family, but not for shameful gain. But eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Don't be heavy-handed. This is not a position of, of authority that we wield with, with a bat, with, with, with um, you know, vengeance. This is something that we, we come and we serve, but we have authority, but we, we serve the church. We don't, we don't lord over the church. We want to serve the church. Yes, there is a biblical authority that God has placed in an elder group of men to be able to do that, but we should do it well. Peter is basically saying, guys, this is how what it looks like to love the body of Christ and love them well. As I was reading this and studying for this message and I was reading this passage, and I thought about and I look out along the landscape of just American churches and how many churches and writers and authors and pastors that I've read and have read about that I admired that either A, don't exercise good oversight over the doctrines of their church and their churches have went south. How many of them have done it for shameful gain financially? I have some people that come to my mind right now, I'm not going to share that, but you may, that the temptation of finances and, and wealth and popularity have overshadowed why they're there. Sin has corrupted them. And, and we have to be on guard for that as well. We are not above that. Not domineering over those that are in charge. Two wonderful guys that I used to read and listen to preach, I can think of, that were on the stage here in America one, I don't think is pastoring anymore because of he was basically uh, pulled out of his church by his pastors. This is a, a very large mega church. Another one um, I, I, for sexuality and, or I should say, immorality, sexual immorality. Another one also for being harsh again, set up multiple churches and, and was, did great things. But eventually these things crept in and, and they had to be removed because of their attitudes. And so this, this idea of protecting the church is no small feat. We are to protect the flock. When you see when Jesus uses these analogies in the Gospel of John about the flock and that we're sheep, one of the things about sheep is they're pretty defenseless. They're pretty helpless. And look, I'm a sheep. So, and that's why God puts shepherds over them. It's such the perfect analogy. There are things that want to attack and kill the sheep. And so we, we make sure that we protect the sheep. We guard the sheep. And John, it says, we sit in the doorway of the pen so that the, the wolf, the, the intruder, cannot come and, and kill the sheep and take the sheep. It's this, we put our life on the line to protect the flock. That's really what he's saying here. It says, if you desire this, you desire a noble thing. Acts 20, verse 28, says, Luke says, pay careful attention to yourselves, right? Because we're not above this. Our elders are not above these same pitfalls that have, have happened to many other men in the ministry and to all the flock. So notice he says, pay attention to yourself first because you can't manage the flock if you can't manage your own life. If you can't live a holy and pure life and strive for that in yourself, how do you ever be able to do that and lead the church? He says, Pray carefully, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Who's the one that is working here to make you an overseer? I believe it's the Holy Spirit working in his church to raise up people, specifically here, men, to be able to serve as pastors and elders and teachers. 
to care for the church which he has obtained with his own blood. Who has bought the church? Who has, who has established the church? Christ has established the church. It's his church. I, I often frequently will go to lunch with someone from the church and we'll be talking and, and I know what they're trying to say. Well, they'll say, your church. I'm saying, no, it's not my church. It's not mine. I'm just one of the servants here. I'm, I'm just serving in a capacity. Someday I won't be here, but I'm just serving. It's your church. You are the church. I'm not the church. I tell the Lord all the time in my prayer, this is your church. This is your church, right? I, I, which gets me off the hook sometimes because it's not like, okay, this is your church. They're being disobedient. It's not my fault. No, just kidding. Um, it's kind of like, you know, when, when Adam said, or Eve said, it was, it was, or as Adam said, it was the woman you gave me, Lord, right? So, so what do we see? What's the next thing I want to share with you? Is it elders are to care for and serve the flock? Elders are to care for and serve the flock. Part of our oversight is to care for them. That's the major part, to caring for and serving the body. Very similar to a parent. It's such a, this is that structure that God has laid down and repeated through all sorts of history. What, what is the point here? Is that you as parents, you care for and serve your children. You have authority there, but you don't wield it in a negative way, you wield it in a supportive way. You want what's best for them, right? And so I just want to give you five quick things that I think as elders, this is how we care and serve the flock. The first and most important one is we teach the Word of God. We teach the Word of God. We preach and teach the Word of God. The number one thing that we can do to care for the local church, the body of Christ, is to teach and preach the Word of God. If you were listening very closely to Dave's message, the Word of God, is he said, when I got here, the word of, was being preached. The Bible was being preached and taught. That is the most important thing. It is what transforms our life. It is what brings life where there is death. The word of God needs to be preached and taught. Number two, by correcting false teaching. By correcting false teaching. Now, some things we're going to disagree on. Some things are going to be um, tier two or tier three issues. Okay, we're, we're not going to debate those things. But if you came and said, well, okay, we can be saved by good works. Okay, I'm going to correct that false teaching. Hunter did a great job explaining that up here. There are other things that we would say, was Jesus fully man? Yes, he was. Was he truly man? Yes. Was he truly God? Yes. We say, no, he wasn't. No, that would be a false teaching. We would talk about the Trinity. What about those things? Um, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Yes, he did. If you believe that that's not true, then I would correct that false teaching, right? Our job is to correct that false teaching. If, if we allowed it and wolves come in and, and sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly come in and bring what they've learned from someplace else, maybe falsehood. If you come in and you've, and some of you I know, have come from a Mormon background or Jehovah's Witness background or, or possibly uh, Catholicism or whatever, the, there's things in those faiths Faiths that I would say are clearly false teachings. And so you unknowingly maybe bring that in and assume that to be true. And one of our jobs as elders is to lovingly correct that false teaching. Now, there are times when we also then have to admonish the false teacher. Because that false teacher is not stopping and continuing to, to teach falsehoods. And so we admonish them. Sometimes that maybe means remove them from membership if they're a member of the church. At times, if it would, got, would get too bad, we would take it before the congregation and say, we just want you to know that, you know, John Q. Public is teaching this, and that's not right. We're not going to bar him from the church, but we're clearly going to say that what he or she is teaching is not true. Number four, elders care and, and serve the flock by praying for the saints, praying for the body. The elders need to do a better job at this, but we spend frequent time praying for you, praying for the membership, praying for, when I say membership, the, the attendance here, everybody that's in attendance. If we know you, if we know what's going on in your life, if you're, if you're sick, we spend time praying for you. We, we, we've broken up at least the membership in, in different uh, shepherd groups so that we can specifically be praying for individuals. Number five, by setting an example on how to live. So men that are going to aspire to this position need to be living in such a way that we would say we would want other men and other people in our church, children and young adults and everybody, to follow our example. Now I will tell you, of all the things that, that rocks me of those five things, that's the one that strikes the fear of God in me. 
because I know there are things about my life I would not want you to follow, right? Now, not nearly as many as there were 25 years ago. And so I am working at living a life of holiness. I'm meeting with 10 or anywhere from five to eight guys every Tuesday, and we're going through a book called The Holiness of God or The Pursuit of Holiness. And we are all just being convicted about all sorts of things, about how the small things in our life that, we're, that we just need to look at and really say, no, how can, I, how can I get rid of these things and pursue a holiness that I maybe don't have in this area, a love for, the, for people maybe that's not there? I mean, how many of you would, would say, oh, yeah, I want, I want everyone in the church to know my life and imitate how I live? Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 7, puts it this way. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. So see this as leaders, we have to speak and teach the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Do I want you to imitate my faith? Mostly. <laughs> right? Mostly. I, I'm striving for that. I, I want to be able to stand before. Uh, in fact, I, these, these um, men, I just, I just want to share this with you because it just, God has just really just impressed upon me. About a year or two ago, I started meeting with a couple guys and, and, um, and some of them are still there. Some of them have left the church. They've moved away. But a couple weeks ago, I was late to our group and there was like eight of us and somebody else was teaching. And I'm the old guy in the group now. I mean, I'm way the old guy in the group. A bunch of them are 20s and 30s. And I go in, and I get there late. I'm only about a half hour to go. And I sit down, and I sit there, and I listen to these men talk about what it means to be holy and how they love the Lord. And, man, I'm just, like, broken. I'm like, this is what it's about. This is what, this is what discipleship is about. This is I, I'm, being able to, to be a part of what God is doing in people's lives this way and the impact that this has in our church, in the lives of families, in the lives of our children. Paul says it this way. I, I love this where Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, what, or excuse me, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I'll just stop right there. Where you rest your mind and your thoughts is so important. Sin starts in the mind, Scripture says. We take every thought captive and put it under Christ. We're, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. Where you meditate, what you place your thoughts on are so important. Paul is just saying, where you keep your thoughts is important. So brothers, whatever's true, that's good. Whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, those things are praiseworthy. Keep your mind on those things. And then what really speaks to me is what Paul says next and challenges me. Whatever you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul's saying, look at me. I follow Christ, so you can look at me and follow me. That's what the body of Christ should be able to say. That's what every disciple of Christ should be able to say. You can follow me because I'm following him. I'm living a life worthy of that. Now, not perfect, not sinless, but that's my goal. That's where my heart is. I meditate on positive things. And you can follow me. And we know clearly that Paul struggles and knows he's a sinner. In Romans 7, he says, I do the things I don't want to do. So Paul's not saying he's perfect. Don't hear that. We don't expect our elders to be perfect. We don't expect the membership to be perfect. We don't expect the body of Christ to be perfect. But we should strive for those things. Next thing I want to share with you is that elders serve as a plurality. Elders serve as a plurality. Not only are they to care and serve the flock, but I believe that we should serve as a plurality. What does that mean? It means there's more than one of us. And why is that important? Why is that important? There's so many reasons. I'm just going to touch on a few. First of all, the most important thing is I think Scripture teaches that. All through Scripture, the word term elders is used. Even in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see that the, the Pharisees and the elders, that was all part of the Jewish system. So there was, there was men in leadership and elder-type positions. But in the New, New Testament, when it becomes the church, there's, there's only certain places where it talks about the elders of the church. Seventeen times when it talks about elders, it's always in the plural. 
always in the plural. Only one or two times, I believe, it's, it's in the singular, and it's speaking about Paul referencing himself, that he is an elder, right? Just two places here. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, it says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord whom they had believed. In James chapter 5, verse 14, many of you are familiar with this, if anyone is sick among you, or if any among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Does it say call the pastor? Call the elders. Call the, the men that are overseeing and leading and guiding the church. They will come, right? And we, I could take you into 15 more passages that talks about all sorts of different opportunities and, and reasons why the elders gather together. So why else would we have a plurality? There was 500 some people here on Easter. Now, Obviously they didn't all come back. If God continues to grow the church, his church, numerically, we need more shepherds. Our job, if missions is the thing that we're about, reaching the lost, sharing the gospel with the lost, we need more teachers and elders and pastors. Much of the, the church in America has been about one pastor, and I'm not saying that's not okay at times, small churches, but even churches of 50 or 60 people that have one pastor, they should be raising up other elders. They should be raising up other men and teachers and women as well, but in the pastoral sense, in the elder sense, they should be raising up other men. I am so blessed to be able to stand beside Brian and three other men that I call my brothers and elders and fellow pastors. And, and I'm, I'm trying to pour into them. They're pouring into me. We're trying to, to hold each other accountable. We want to love you well. We want to love the church well. We want to guard the church. We want to protect the bride. We want to do those things. But one of our roles is to raise up others. And so that's really my next point for you is elders have the responsibility to train new elders. Who is going to raise up other elders if not the elders that we currently have? And, and I'll be honest with you, we need to do better at that. We need to be more devoted to spending time and challenging and, and speaking truth into men and challenging them in their walk. I am so proud, though, that over the last several years, what have we seen here in, in the pulpit? We've seen other men. Rich Wilmoth, one of our elders, has spoken. Brian has spoken. I've preached. Nathan Middlestetter, a 25, 26-year-old young man, has preached. Seth Wright, 21 at the time maybe, came and preached. Now as a pastor, youth pastor of another church. Kyle Miller has come and he has preached. Um, he's now, I believe, going to seminary online. Luke Middlestetter has preached. Another 20-some-year-old man has preached. He's getting ready to decide somewhere, we're not sure yet, but to go to seminary for four years. I want more men to be in this pulpit. I want, I want to raise up. I want God to raise up. And I want to be a part of that to see many people st sit, stand here and be able to preach and teach God's word. A, a few weeks ago, <laughs> I hope this is not too candid for most of you. Um, I didn't preach the Timothy passage about women not being able to be over men. Brian got that one. He did a really good job. And I wasn't even in here. I was actually over in student ministry uh, watching Luke Middlesetter teach because I want to pour into him. Sometimes I go back to children's ministry and I watch Rick teach or the ladies teach back in, in children's ministry to be there and support the kids and love on the kids. And, and, and somebody, and, and we, we've talked, we're really good, but somebody said, why aren't you in here during this message? Because you know, big message, Right? And I basically wrote a nice long message back, and I says, because Brian is capable of handling the word of God. He's a pastor in our church. doesn't need to be me. I'm not afraid of it. I wasn't hiding, right? I think maybe they thought at first that I was hiding, like, you know, you're chicken, you know? No, I already spoke two weeks on Genesis about the roles of men and women, right? I need you to see Pastor Brian as a pastor who's able to handle the word of God in any situation. I need you to see the elders that way. It's not about the lead pastor. I am one of many. I know my wife doesn't want to hear this. She's in this service. Someday I will not be here. Maybe because 
we move away maybe because the Lord comes or maybe because I die someday. If it's about me or, well, I like, you know, I like Pastor Brian this way or that way. Well, good, I'm glad you like Pastor Brian. He delivers messages different than I do, and I'm so thankful for him. I love when, I will tell you that when Luke and some of these young men preached recently, in fact, when Luke got done, he was the, one of the last ones here that just preached, I just looked at my wife and said, I can retire. <laughs> I mean, like, these guys are handling the word of God in a way that honors God, is, is glorifying to him, and is building up the congregation, and this is what I want to see. This is what matters to me, right? And, and so what I want, and I just read a, a good book yesterday, that we always as pastors, especially as lead pastors, need to be preparing our congregation for your departure. Because it's not about the lead pastor. It's about the word of God. It's about Christ and his work. And anyone that can come with the right biblical character and present and teach the word of God in a glorifying way that edifies the body and glorifies God, can stand here in this pulpit and you should have your utmost respect for them. And so, elders have the responsibility to train up new elders. That takes time. Second Timothy, Paul puts it this way in his letter to his second letter to Timothy, verses, chapter two, verses one and two. It says, you then, my child, and he's talking to Timothy here. He says, be strengthened by the grace, of, by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have learned, here it is, and what you have heard from me in the presence of witnesses, entrust to faithful men who are able to teach others also. What Paul is saying, he says, look, what I've said, I've said in public. I, I, Timothy, you need to trust the Lord here, and you've heard these things from me, and you need to impart this to faithful men. You need to raise up other faithful men and entrust it to them so that they can continue to teach and preach. Let's say that we continue, God continues to bring people here, and we get to the place where this room is not big enough for two services. I don't know. Maybe we build. Maybe we don't. I don't know what the Lord will do there. But let's say we had a bunch of people come from Inglewood, and we wanted to plant a church in Inglewood. Do I have or do we have three or four men that are going to teach and preach that we can say, we're going to send you, and we're going to send 30 people with you, and we're going to plant a church in Inglewood? We should, we should be working to that endeavor. I don't know that that's what God will call us to do, but that's what we should be prepared to do if he so calls us to do it. I love the fact that we sent Seth out. I mean, we didn't physically send him, but he chose to go. And I think that God used you and, and our congregation to help prepare him for that. I, I trust that Luke is going to end up eldering or pastoring somewhere. I trust that someday many of these young men sitting here are going to end up eldering in some church somewhere as they grow up, protecting the bride, protecting their family, upholding and glorifying God in a culture that so desperately needs witnesses and salt in our culture. Who else is going to do this? God has entrusted it to us. So, for men that want to aspire to eldership, what are some just thoughts? What are some things that you should be doing and thinking about? You need to be make sure that you're studying and, and meditating and learning God's word on a regular basis. That's in service, in your personal Bible study time, possibly schooling. doesn't have to be, but that's always a good one. Small groups, discipleship groups, life groups. Number two, you need to imitate others other biblically sound elder traits. I try to be very clear about that. I want you to imitate other elders except for the traits that we have that you should not imitate. Okay? There's going to be certain things you're probably going to say, no, don't, don't do that. Raleigh's not a good example there. You need to cultivate a servant's heart. Remember, an elder is a servant. Not a, there, we're overseers, and yes, there is some authority, but at the heart of it, we're serving the body. We're meeting the needs. Christ came and he says what? I came to serve, not to be served. And what does he demonstrate to his disciples? We, we didn't talk about this over the past few weeks, but the night before he was killed, what does he do? He gets down on his hands and knees and he washes their feet and he tells them what? You should do this to one another. He's saying, look, you're gonna be tempted to have a, you think that you have all this authority and that you're better than anybody, but you should go and serve the kingdom, serve the body of Christ. And I'm showing you this by washing your feet. This was the Son of God getting down and washing these men's feet. 
So we need to cultivate a servant's heart. And then strive to live a holy, pure life. Not, you're not going to be perfect, I get that. But what does that mean? It means to strive to live a holy, perfect life, to, to, to desire those things, to seek after those things. And even when you screw up and you don't do things, it's, it's being transparent before people and, and doing that. I, I said last service that when I was a, a student leader, um, and I was a pastor and I was leading student ministries, and I'm so glad that Brian has come along because he does such a better job than I did in that role. But, but one of the things I always said was I wanted to invite kids to our home and so that they could see my wife and I and even when we disagreed, they could see that because then they could see how we resolved it. They could see the, the, the working of Christ in us, the gospel playing out, not just, we don't, we're not perfect. We have arguments. We have disputes, right? But they're seeing the whole picture. And I think that is such an important thing for, for young people to see, other couples to see. We're not claiming to be perfect. We're claiming that when we sin, we, ask for, we repent and we ask for forgiveness and we turn things over to Christ and try and live pure for him. And then obviously, if you have, want to know a guideline, look at 1 Timothy, or 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7. There's some of the qualifications. Start looking at those things and, and measuring yourself against those things and striving for that. And so, how do I want to close here? One, I'm going to ask Bill and Betsy Ward to come up. I don't know where you're at, guys. Where are you at? Oh, they're there. Come on up. You can either come up on stage or you can stay down front. doesn't matter to me. And what I'm going to ask them to do is I'm going to ask them to close in prayer um, and kind of just pray. And so um, your next step this morning before they pray is I, I want us as a body of Christ, and ladies, this is, this is absolutely for you. Obviously, we want to pray that everybody wants to submit to a holy life and to pursue that. But specifically, because here in the text, and because I think that this honors God, I want us to pray that God will raise up men to aspire to this noble task. Because I want men to protect the bride. I want men standing guard over the bride. I want men, and, and all of us, to refute false teaching in love, I want men to be able to be here to serve the flock, serve the bride, care for it, bandage up its wounds, cry with it, pray with it. And so I'm just going to ask them to close in prayer. If you would bow your heads. Oh, Father God, we just come to you humbly. Um, we just thank you for your love and your mercy in our lives. Thank you for your continuing to strive with us, Lord, as we desire to live holy lives before you. I just pray, Father, for uh, a desire in the men within this church to lead, to lead their families, to desire to uh, be godly men in how they act and how they treat their wives and their kids and those around them, Father. I pray that you would be just drawing them, uh, putting a strong desire on them to uh, want to serve, to want to lead, to want to teach. Father, I pray you would just um, reveal to the men any sin issues that may be in their lives currently, even pride issues, Lord. Uh, as you're drawing them to desire to lead uh, in a godly way and to raise up young men, even in high school and below, Lord, that they would just want to study your word and be approved, Father. Um, I pray for wisdom and strength and guidance in that. And for those who are currently leading, <clears throat> I pray that you would just give them the wisdom of the Holy Spirit uh, to be rightly discerning and uh, revealing any issues that need to be dealt with, Lord. <clears throat> Father, I agree with these prayers. Father, I, I thank you, Father, for your word. Father, we, we know that you're faithful to complete the work that you've started in us. And Father, I pray for each soul you've brought here. 
for the working of your Holy Spirit, Father, to continue to mature us into Christ. Father, that they uh, would have the desire to be in your word, that they'd have a growing love for your word, Father, that they would have a growing love for your body, that they would desire to be the hands and feet that you des- you've created us to be, Father, that we would walk in the things that you've planned for us, as it says in Ephesians. Father, thank you uh, for your mercy, for your Holy Spirit. Father, for your gift of life in Christ. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.